0: The God of love and peace be with you. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you act morally the right way, let your virtue shine out, then God is going to bless you big time. Except for when Joseph did the right thing, he rotted in prison for many years before God finally elevated him out of that prison. Oh, oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you dig deep down in your hearts and you find the power to desperately cling to God after making your decision, you'll have a faith that why well, you can pick up mountains and move them. Except for why would you move that mountain? Is that in accord with God's will? Martin Luther, in the Heidelberg Disputation, early on after he'd posted his 95 Thesis, labeled what I'm talking about a theology of glory. The theology of glory is the theology of your and my sinful nature. It wants to see God as a genie in the bottle that I can pull out, rub, and say, Do this for me! And now you've done it, get back in the bottle. I'm glorifying myself with that kind of a thinking. I'm clinging to the things of this world. That is definitely not what is taught in our gospel lesson today in Luke chapter 9, nor is it taught in our sermon text. A crucible is a clay pot in which metal is heated over a fire so that it becomes molten. And this cleans out the dross, and of course in its molten state you can form it. And so in our sermon text today, we see that the cross is God's crucible for Christians. Our sermon text is recorded in Zechariah chapter 13 verses 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who is my associate, declares the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. This will take place in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds of those who remain in it will be cut off and perish, but one-third will be left in it. I will put that third into the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined. And I will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Zechariah was a priest who was part of the Israelites who got to return after the Babylonian captivity, after the Persians had conquered the Babylonians, he got to return and be part of the rebuilding of the temple and the temple walls. Only one problem. Most of the Jews were quite happy in their place in life, and and God would use them to proclaim the good news of salvation, the coming Messiah. So not all of them stayed sinfully. Most didn't return to Jerusalem. And the ones who did return to Jerusalem, they built an altar. But they weren't in any kind of a hurry to rebuild the temple. And they knew it wasn't going to look as glorious as Solomon's temple. And they weren't in a hurry to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem even for protection. Instead, a lot of the rabble bricks that were left behind, they were using those to build their own houses. So God sends Zechariah to prophesy to them. Zechariah has the privilege of saying some very important prophecies of our coming Savior, including the one that he would come riding in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. In today's text, God shows us that the cross is God's crucible for Christians. Now, in the Hebrew, we're told a declaration from the Lord of multitudes or armies. That's verse 7. God created everything, He can use the power of His stars to His advantage. He can use the power of the individual atoms that He created and the protons and the neutrons and whatnot to His advantage. And so even if we human beings were able to design a weapon that we were confident would work against God, we are subject to the natural scientific laws He created, such as physics, that would empower that weapon to work, but God is not. He created those. Why am I bringing this up? Because God says a declaration from the Lord of armies. He is saying here, I am making a promise to you. I am declaring this to you and nothing, no human being is going to stop me from making this happen. That's comfort for you and I. But what is such an important declaration in verse 7? Sword, awaken yourself against my shepherd that is my close associate who is a man in the prime of his life. What? Going out of the way to say, I'm the one in control and I'm making this declaration. Now get out there and kill my shepherd. That's actually comforting for you and I. And the way it's said in the Hebrew is kind of clunky English translation. But we know here who's the good shepherd? Jesus Christ. And we're told that word, the word that's used for a man here is not a child. It's not an older man. It's a man in the prime of his life. Christ in the prime of his life, roughly age 33, he would live perfectly for you, but he will die to purchase and win you into his flock to make you his sheep. And the next Hebrew word that's used there to modify young men, I translate as close associate. In the book of Leviticus, when this is used... It's somebody from your own clan, like Judah or Benjamin. It's somebody who has the same bloodlines as you do, and it's somebody who's also spiritually united with you. What a beautiful word that Jesus speaking to us through the prophet Zechariah tells us of his own self, even though it's about 480 years away from Christ's birth. Christ is pointing out that he's true man, but he's true God. We have one God in three persons, and this is how He has a family relationship, because He's begotten, not made. He is true God from true God, and yet He's also our Savior. Oh, and we know what that sword is, don't we? That sword is going to be the cross. Here a sword is used as an instrument that's used for slicing and killing. It's not just the cross, it's the cruel action of those Roman soldiers and the spitting and the mocking and the hitting that the Sanhedrin and others would do to Him. But this is done so that He can purchase and win you. One thing I want you to understand very clearly. We're going to get into your being purged of your dross. Your crosses you bear, do not remove your sin. Christ does. Christ atones for you. Christ has made you the precious metal. And here's how He did it. God allowed the sword or the cross to come upon Himself. And so, in in the next section of verse 7, He says, "...bring about the shepherd being struck, and then the sheep will scatter." Very interesting, the Hebrew verb that's used and the mood intense. tense. Bring it about. See, God didn't directly just strike down His Son, did He? Oh, no. God knew that Judas, for example, would have 30 pieces of silver as God in His heart. And Judas would be willing to betray his son. So God planned to use that. The Sanhedrin that was supposed to point like John the Baptist and say, Behold the Lamb of God! This is the good shepherd that makes us lamb in his flock. Instead, even knowing the miracles he did, God knew they would hate and despise and plot the murder, and he planned on using that. Ah, he knew Pilate's cowardice! that Pilate would not stand up to the crowd, and he knew that the soldiers would cruelly get their entertainment for the day out of basically torturing an innocent man. And so the Hebrew verb tense that's used there in mood brings all that out, that God is bringing it about. He sees what's going on, and this is how it's going to happen. And what does he say? The sheep will scatter. When Jesus is arrested, certainly the eleven do scatter, don't they? Two... Two are brave enough to enter the high priest's courtyard, the outer court. One denies the Lord to a slave girl of those two. The other one goes even into the inner court. That one is the only of the eleven disciples. This is the one that calls himself Jesus' best friend. John is bold enough to stand at the cross. But this is not just a prophecy of his disciples scattering, and we know Jesus purchased and won them, and they would become apostles. This is a picture of what always happens. As we can see in the conversion of Saul, Jesus appears to him. Saul's out arresting Christians to have them killed. But does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my little flock? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you're hated for being a Christian, it's because you are hated for being God's child. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, since we will scatter without a shepherd, we thank the Lord that Christ's cross Puts you in the crucible. He makes you the precious silver. And God even ends verse 7 by saying, But I will cause my hand to return upon the insignificant sheep. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Hebrew word used for insignificant literally is the young. Now, when I served as a pastor in South Dakota, I learned when a man loses a calf, like when he's got to pull it and it dies because of labor problems, that's hard the farm is going to financially take a hit. But when he loses the cow, now he's got years of feed and everything into it, he's really going to take a hit. As we learned in Bible study today, when the little children were coming to the disciples, they saw those young children as insignificant. Jesus said, oh no. The same Hebrew word that's used for young can also be seen in the relationship of children. See, it was the oldest son that got the double inheritance, and that was to support dad and his retirement mom and any unmarried sisters when dad died. But when the family was taken care of there, they got to continue to enjoy the double inheritance. The youngest? Well, let's look at a very important Bible story to see how insignificant the youngest was seen as. God sends Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And who does Jesse present first? His oldest. And he was handsome and he looked kingly. That's not the one. Second oldest. That's not the one. Didn't even dawn on him to get the youngest. He left him out in the fields with the flocks. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, when God picked his disciples, he did not pick the rabbis. We got the guy who's studying to be a rabbi and Paul, but the rest, fishermen, tax collectors... He made the insignificant significant. And it's the same for you. You might feel like, gee, I don't have the training of a pastor and and I, I don't have this glorious position at work. But see, you're significant to God. He picked you. He made you who would be insignificant in this world and He made you precious silver and He's got you in His hand. So when He puts you in the crucible, never forget, it's under His loving care. So we see the cross is God's crucible for Christians. Christ's cross puts you in the crucible because it's Christ's cross that has made you who were insignificant into precious silver and gold worthy of refining. In our Gospel lesson, we saw in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, He is explaining all of this, literally coming down to the fact, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law. He must be killed and raised on the third day. Christ went through the fire of the cross to purchase and win you and make you precious metal. Now what do you do as precious metal? Verse 8 begins a declaration from the Lord. God still says, here's a promise. He doesn't say, as the Lord of multitudes, but all of God's promises are true. But He's here again saying, take a moment to recognize, I am solemnly pointing out to you how seriously I mean this. And this will take place in all the land. Two-thirds will be cut off in the land, they will perish, and one-third will be left over in it. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, we especially see this in the fulfillment of the true religion. See, Christians truly are Jews. We are the true Jewish religion. Abraham looked forward to the coming of his descendant, his greater son Jesus. And how sad it is that we see even those who were willing to return, two-thirds of them, that's a rough estimate, were unwilling to see Jesus as the Savior in spite of miracles and everything else. Were willing to trust in their own works, the theology of glory. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we can say the same thing of the visible church today. It saddens me how many pulpits today will be proclaimed from the lips of people who do not believe God's Word is inspired, who see just some cute moral stories that help bring home a kind of a religious spiritual lesson, people who will deny the virgin birth, deny that Jesus is true God, etc. Even in the visible church, I can say roughly two-thirds are rejecting their Savior. One-third will be left over. Now, this one-third is the silver. This is the one that were purchased into the invisible Christian church. It's made up of everyone who truly trusts in Jesus as their Savior. And does God say, there you are, my precious little lamb. Let me me just feed you on the best grass. And and let me make sure that you never have to deal with briars and brambles and wolves in this world. Oh, no. Verse 9. And I will cause the event of that third entering into the fire. Again, it's interesting the tense and mood that the Hebrew uses. God does not directly just kick you into the fire, no. He sees the events that are coming. He says, this is going to help and and this is not, so I'll remove this much, but you're still going to go into the fire. He explains it with even more clarity. I will refine them like silver is refined, and I will test them like gold is tested. You put silver in the crucible. Now remember, Jesus has made you the silver. So this is not washing away your sins. It's not atoning for you. You have been atoned. You're the silver. You put the silver in the crucible and you put it in the heat. And it melts. And everything that has a lesser melting temperature than the silver, it gets burned up. And how do you know when to remove the silver so that you do not destroy the silver itself? When you see your own image in it. See, God has restored His image in you with the new man. But we also have our old image, the sinful nature. There are things in this life that we cling to. There are sins that we are weak to and we often will run to embrace them. God does not want to lose you. So He puts you in the crucible into the fire. One of the ways He does that is to let you, not as an eternal punishment, but as a discipline, He will let you suffer the consequences of your sin. Let me give you an example. I've often used the story of a child who at a young age is reaching up at Thanksgiving time to touch the hot burners of a stove, not knowing they're hot, wanting food. And I saw that hand. I didn't want that child getting third degree burns. So what did I do? Held the child by the wrist and pushed the hand close enough that it was uncomfortable that the child would want to pull back from the heat. Owie! No! No! And the child never got the third degree burn. God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our sin when we insist on embracing them so that we get that owie, no, no. He's burning off the dross. Sometimes God will allow us to suffer hard times for our neighbor so that they can see that they need to be made silver. Sometimes God lets us suffer these simply because He is strengthening our faith and removing the areas where we're weak. Now, in the second part of that verse, we're told, I will test them like gold is tested. And you've often heard me say from this pulpit, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, there are primarily two words for testing. Now, when God tests us, God is all-knowing. It's not for God's knowledge, it's for you. The first kind of test is, do I have gold or ingot? Fool's gold. That's a pass-fail test. The second test is, I know I've got gold. How many carat gold is it? That's an examination of character. And the word used here is pass-fail. When God puts us into the fire, He is showing us where we have faith and where we don't. In the early Christian church, when the Romans were persecuting the Christians, it was simple. Offer a prayer uh, to Caesar as God and a pinch of incense and hand over the Scriptures. Many Christians stood up to the test and they became wonderful witnesses of the peace we have in Christ. Many Christians failed the test and offered a pinch of incense. Some of them, though, God brought back. And in that test, he was strengthening them. I can think of no greater example than the Apostle Peter himself, who on the night he denies the Lord, says, Lord, I will never deny you. And then swears before a 12-year-old, roughly, slave girl that he does not know the Lord. Why did God put him through the flames and let him suffer that sifting of wheat that the devil wanted to do? Because he saw the good in it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter was shown his weakness and Peter never denied the Lord again. Sometimes we look at these tests and we go, "Ah, I failed it. And we look at it as if we're an utter failure. That's not the way to look at it. Look at it as God purging the dross. Look at it as God strengthening you so that he can shape you as the precious metal he's made. And so Jesus, in our text, in Luke 9, verse 23, in our gospel lesson, said to the disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Yes, anybody who proclaims to you that when you do the right steps in Christianity, you're going to have glory in this world and things are going to be hunky-dory, they're lying to you. Jesus' words say, daily, because I love you, I'm going to put you in the crucible and in the fire. But it's for your eternal well-being. He's purifying you. He's refining you. He's keeping you. And so we're told, this third itself keeps on calling on my name, and I keep on answering it. He puts you in the crucible so that you don't stop. Calling on His name. When you're in the crucible and it hurts and you feel the molten coming and it seems like you're not going to survive, you cry out, Lord God help me. And sometimes He puts us in the crucible simply so that we remember to call on His name. To call on His name is to trust in Him especially for all the things His name represents that He does for us. For His providence. For His salvation that He gives to us. And He says, I promise... I answer it. And God knows all things, so he knows the best answer for you. So you don't have to even bring the exact problem. Lord, this is what I have, and this is how I want you to solve it. You just say, ouch, Lord, I'm getting to boil in this crucible. And God says, I know, my dear little lamb, I'm almost done with my lesson for you. I've said it's my people, and it keeps on saying the Lord is my God. Why does God put you through the crucible? Because you are His Lamb. You are His people. And He puts you through that crucible to keep you as His people. So that oftentimes, even in our witnesses, we're in the fire. We're crying out, the Lord is my God. And we're crying out to our God. Sometimes you're in that crucible because God wants you to witness to the neighbor. And the cross you're bearing is doing that so beautifully. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're foreigners and strangers here. Heaven is our home. And when we're in the crucible, God is keeping us as our home and reminding us not to get embraced and attached to things of this world, not to let it have the place in our heart that belongs to God, because He loves us. And so as we see through Zechariah, Things aren't always so easy according to this world's ways when we become Christians, but it's a custom-fit act of God's love for you. The cross is God's crucible for Christians. Christ's cross puts you in the crucible. The crucible, or your crosses, removes your dross. Amen. Let us pray. Help us to serve you evermore with hearts both pure and lowly. And may your word, that light divine, shine on in splendor holy. that we repent and show in faith ever grow. The power of sin destroy and all evils that annoy, O oh, make us faithful Christians. Amen.